The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from the book of Micah, chapter 1, verses 1 through 9. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear, you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open, like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a, deep pla- a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones in the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images will be beaten to pieces, all her wages shall be burned with fire, and all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. God. Well, good morning, everybody. As it's already been mentioned, we're starting a new series today called Forgiveness uh, Studies in the Book of Micah. Micah was a, a prophet of God, and uh, the, first, uh, the first message is about sadness and how sadness can actually be a, a soil or a seed for revival. So I'll start uh, with uh, the Rolling Stones guitarist Keith Richards, who um, is a bit of a freak of nature. He's like a cat with nine lives, or maybe even more than nine lives. Uh, The Rolling Stone uh, magazine uh, described Keith Richards' life as, and I quote, a life of excess, abandon, and infinite good luck. Uh, Sleep deprivation, illicit sex, DUIs, uh, heavy alcohol use, LSD, cocaine, and especially heroin. Uh, were for many decades his closest companions. And uh, he said this in his own words, my refuge was heroin, it was drugs, and I stayed there for as long as I could. So, so Keith Richards is now 79 years old. He's still uh, actively touring with uh, the remaining uh, surviving members of the Rolling Stones. Uh, He now wears a wedding ring on stage and rolls his eyes at Mick Jagger's antics. It seems like maybe he's grown up a little bit. Um, But there are memes out there on the internet uh, uh, kind of 
making fun of the fact that this man has had infinite good luck. Uh, Again, to quote Rolling Stone magazine, one of the memes pictures Keith Richards holding a newborn baby. Uh, He is somewhere middle-aged, around, you know, 45 to 50 years old in the picture, and he's holding a little baby. And the caption says, the first time Keith Richards met Queen Elizabeth. The second meme, he's more like mid-60s, you know, faces wrinkled and rough, dragging on a cigarette, playing, uh, you know, playing in a concert. And the meme says, we all need to start worrying about the kind of world that we are going to leave for Keith Richards. So Prophet Micah is a scathing indictment of, of the people of God who have gone wayward from God. They are so mired by this point in self-destructive behavior. They are so out of touch with the tsunami of wreckage and ruin that lies ahead of them because of their self-destructive nature. It's as if the people of Israel have gotten to the point where they think that the infinite good luck that Keith Richards has is also theirs. And Micah shows up to tell them it's not that way. His piercing message to them sounds a lot like an addiction intervention. And he's, he's calling an entire nation of people back to sobriety, back to who they were meant to be, back to who they've been called to be and set apart to be as the children of God. And so today's message is about intervention uh, in the presence or in the context of potential self-ruin. So if you're, you're here for the first time, welcome to our church. Uh, glad you're here. Our three points are the sin of Samaria, the misery of God's people, and uh, the messengers who stay. So we'll start with the sin of Samaria. Curious question here, verse 5, what is the sin of Jacob? It's rhetorical. And an even more curious answer, is not the sin of Jacob Samaria? That's an odd way to put it. Micah is saying that the existence of Samaritans is the sin of God's people. He's telling Israel, it is your sin that has caused these people to exist. Now that sounds a little bit harsh if I'm a Samaritan, but here's the background there. 1 Kings chapter 11, God explicitly forbids his people Israel from intermarrying with people from the surrounding nations in the land of Canaan. It's not a racism thing. It's not a nationalism thing. Like, like God's not saying only marry your own race. It's perfectly fine to, to, to have a, and good and beautiful to have a cross-racial marriage or, or a marriage between two people from different nationalities. That's not what he's after. What he's talking about here is intermarrying two different faiths that pledge allegiance to two different deities. That's what's going on. So what happened later, though, was that Solomon, the king of Israel, the one who's the federal head of the entire nation, who is supposed to set the example and the pace for faithfulness and obedience to the commands of God, 
It says also in 1 Kings that Solomon loved many foreign women. Pharaoh's daughter, Hittite women, and women from Moab, Ammon, Edom, Sidon. It says that the Lord said to the people of Israel, never intermarry with them. They will surely tempt you to follow other gods. But it says Solomon was obsessed. Obsessed with the love of forbidden women. And over time, he accumulated 700 wives and 300 concubines. That's 1,000 women. A thousand. One, zero, zero, zero. A thousand women. The king of God's people. What does this have to do with Samaria? So, Samaritans were half Israelite and half Assyrian. And so, so the Samaritans were the fruit of Israel's disobedience about intermarrying in a cross-religious uh, sort of way. And throughout Micah, the Lord is saying to the people of God, I told you so, and here we are. And verse 7 talks about how sex cults of, of, of the Canaanite religions have now replaced the temple of Yahweh for the people of God. And it says this in verse 7, Her carved images shall be beaten to pieces, her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. And so what is idolatry? Idolatry is prostituting yourself. It's taking a good thing even, like in Solomon's case, romantic love a good and created thing that God has given for a proper context uh, to support human flourishing and to support human joy, but taking a good thing and turning it into an obsession rising to the level of worship. How do you detect that you have taken a good thing and, and, and made it an obsession rising to the level of worship? One way to detect it is you're willing to do crazy things in order to get it, to keep it, and protect it. Crazy things. Things like the sex cults. So, so the, God, the gods, the, the false gods of the sex cults, the, 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 the promise that they made was fertility, especially for couples who had a difficult time conceiving, which is, I, I know, you know, throughout history and, and, and even today, a, a, a deep wound that, that's experienced and a deep desperation that's experienced uh, by many people. And so the, the gods of the fertility cults would say, come here, have extramarital relationship with, with, with the prostitutes of our cult and our temple, and that will increase your chances of conceiving a child. Then there was another god called Molech, and Molech was the god of financial security. And so if there's a recession around the corner, uh, if you've fallen on hard times, if you've lost your job, you're unemployed, uh, you would go to the temple of Molech, and what you would do in order to procure his favor was that you would sacrifice your own children into a fire, burn them alive for an economic kickback. You will do crazy things 
Look at the areas of your life where you are most willing to harm yourself, to harm others, or to disobey God. And on the other side of that question, if, if, if there are areas in your life that way, uh, like that, you've got an idol on the other, other side of that. So, so King Solomon's downfall, back to King Solomon, God could not have set anybody up for success more than Solomon was set up for success. His dad did all the work, right? It was a dream that was in David's heart to build a temple, a house uh, for the worship of the Lord, for God's people. And God said to David, it's not going to be you. It's actually going to be your son Solomon who builds the temple. And so what David did was he spent the rest of his life accumulating assets, resources, networks, materials, you know, uh, uh, know, contractors, etc., so that he could just hand it off to his son, tee it up for him. And, and, and so Solomon ends up building the temple. But the other thing that God gave Solomon was a superpower of wisdom. He was wiser, the Scriptures say, than anybody on the face of the earth. He could rightly judge very, very complicated uh, cases in ways that nobody else had the discernment or wisdom to judge those cases. He wrote a lot of the Proverbs that, that, that we have now in the Scriptures. You know, David wrote a lot of the Psalms. Solomon wrote a lot of the Proverbs out of his wisdom. God gave this man all the wisdom in the world, and he ended up not using it. He didn't use it well. You know, if you read the story of Solomon, the account in, in Kings and Chronicles especially, there's a theme that arises that, that becomes the epitaph of Solomon's life. And it's repeated over and over again in his biography in the Bible. He will take. He will take. That's what's said about Solomon. He will take. Over time, the wisest man who ever lives becomes a fool. And he's dragged into foolishness by his obsession with sexual lust and also with forced slavery and materialism and greed. Just for perspective, 1 Kings tells us that it took Solomon seven years to build a house for God, the temple, And it took 13 years for him to build his own palace, almost twice as long, investing twice as much in himself as he invested in the Lord. The sin of Samaria. Secondly, the misery of God's people. So in order to resurrect our hearts, sometimes God has to bury our hearts and put our hearts in the ground. And and here you've got God's servant, Micah, burying the hearts of the people of God, just shoving a smelling salt under their noses with words that convey death, doom, destruction, despair. Words like spiritual prostitution, verse 7, or incurable wounds, verse 9, or Or verse 12, disaster has come down upon you from the Lord. So the best counselors agree that 
the only way that a person can really get well is to not look away from the harm that's been done to you, but to look straight into it. There are all kinds of of actual trauma therapies that that exist that are very effective, that, that take people back to their buried memories, especially from family of origin related pain and trauma. And the whole design is to to look straight into the abyss of what happened to you as a way to neutralize its power over you and how you respond to the world. It's very effective treatment. And so for, for Israel, they have the lingering memory of how how much damage had been done to them under the oppressive hand of the enslaving Egyptian pharaoh. And Israel even got to a place when they were in the wilderness after they'd escaped Israel where they, or, or Egypt where they got a, a bit of Stockholm syndrome, where they, they got nostalgic and they would say, you know, out of their discomfort in the wilderness to their leaders, Moses and Aaron, if only you had left us back in Egypt where we ate so well and lived in such luxury, which, which, is, which is crazy because if you, if you, it, it makes you irrational too. If you look at the history of Israel in Egypt, it, it, it was so bad that, that, that Pharaoh was, was harsh with them and telling them they had not only to make bricks, but they had to find their own straw to do it. And they had these impossible quotas Ten times worse than, than, than you might experience in, in certain tech companies right now that you hear about. Ten times worse. But they have this nostalgic memory because they get Stockholm Syndrome about the Pharaoh who had made their life so miserable. But the other thing that the gospel and Micah here invites the people of God to do is not only to look square into the abyss of the things that have been done to you, but also look square into the abyss of things that have been done by you. The hurt that you've caused. Not just the hurt that you've felt and experienced, but the hurt that you've caused. So at graduation for both of our daughters, I gave them, I gave them both a letter. And the letter had two sections. The first section was, you're welcome. Uh, and, you know, just kind of rehearse the, the ways that, that God had blessed them by putting them in our family. You're welcome. And then, then there was this other section, I'm sorry. And, um, and in that section, I didn't just say I'm sorry in general. I isolated particular things over the course of their lives that I could specifically remember of, of, of ways that I had hurt them. And I remember one of our daughters saying, Dad, you, this is one of the most meaningful things you've ever done for me. Thank you. But you have to get particular. You have to get specific in order for the power of God to, to be unleashed here. Sorrow is underrated. That's the point here. Sorrow is underrated. If you want the joy of the Lord, you have to let God make you sad. You have to. Godly sorrow is the avenue, and there's no bypass around it. Godly sorrow is what leads to repentance with no regrets, which no regrets leads to joy and flourishing and 
So you know how it goes. It's, it's incredibly sad news when somebody you know, you know, they don't feel right, and so they go into the doctor, and they, they take some x-rays, and they discover you've got a malignancy in your armpit. You, you've got cancer. That's terrible news, but, but even worse than that is to, is, to, is to have those signs and symptoms and maybe feel that lump that was never there before and, and decide, I'm going to ignore it. I'm going to compartmentalize. I'm going to go about my life. I'm going to go about my business. I don't want to deal with the short-term pain of having to deal with something so scary. And, 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 and what happens when you don't look into it and, and stare into the abyss and put the x-ray on it is you get worse quicker. How much more when we're talking about the health of an eternal soul? You know, the 141st Psalm is helpful. And I, I, I can't help but wonder, and I don't know what the chronology of, of this psalm versus the 51st Psalm might be, but I can't help but wonder that, 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 that perhaps David is, is thinking about the memory of his friend Nathan, who put his own life on the line by, by telling David he had sinned grievously by, by seeing and sending for and taking his neighbor's wife Bathsheba in the way that he did. It was a low point in David's life. And Nathan comes to him and confronts him for that. I can't help but think that maybe that's the memory that, that inspired the 141st Psalm where David says, do not let my heart incline to any evil, to busy myself with wicked deeds. Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. So Oscar Wilde famously said that a true friend stabs you in the front. Not in the back, in the front. In other words, I'm here. I'm showing up for you like like Nathan did for David. I'm putting myself on the line with you. I'm making myself vulnerable. I'm putting something out there for you, King David, that you could hurt me with but I care enough for you that I'm willing to take the risk. There is something in you that needs excavating, O king. Micah is this true friend stabbing an entire nation in the front. Not with a sword, but with a scalpel. Not in a military fashion, but in a surgical fashion. Not to destroy them, but, but, but to, to heal them. Finally, messengers who stay. Did you notice in verse 8 this, this curious first-person language that the prophet uses? He's possibly the only godly person in all of Israel right now. Possibly the only righteous person except maybe, you know, Isaiah and a couple of his other, you know, prophet contemporaries. Did you catch in verse 8 where he says, For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. Micah is, is talking as if he, the innocent man, was one of the people who created this whole mess through sin and disobedience. He's identifying with the sins of the people as an innocent man. That sounds familiar. You know, Micah had lived through several attacks on Judah and never left. 
anyone would want to hit eject after even one attack. And then he laments as if it were his fault, even though it wasn't. This is a man who faithfully preached to a people who would not listen to him with zero signs of fruit, with zero signs of success, zero signs of revival, preached for 16 solid years, and it took an entire 25 years for revival to actually come. That's the typical lifetime tenure of a pastor is about 25 years. Fruitless ministry, a lot like Isaiah, but like Moses, who's in the wilderness with with a grumbling people. You know, C.S. Lewis says about grumbling, you know, hell begins with a grumbling mood. And, 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 And so Israel is bringing hell upon themselves and bringing hell upon Moses and Aaron and putting hell in the face of God with their grumbling. Hell begins with a grumbling mood. But like, but like, uh, Micah, Moses, and Aaron stay with the people, and they intercede for the people, and they ask God not to destroy the people. They die. This is what faithful prophets do. They, 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 they sit with the people in all the contamination, prostitution, and devastation that they did not participate in as if they did. That's what Jesus does. Why would an innocent person subject himself to an offending nation's misery. James Montgomery Boyce, who wrote my favorite commentary on the book of Micah, says this in answer to that question. He says, Micah's success as a witness for God, I'm sorry, Micah's success as a witness for God is that he genuinely identified with the people to whom he was speaking, and genuinely grieved for what was coming to them. Do you want to be successful in your witness? Then do not give the impression that your sole duty is to announce a disaster that you couldn't care less what happens to those to whom you speak. And this is the takeaway quote right here. More people have been won by honey than by thunder. Many who have rejected a Christian's logic have been won by his tears. So this name Solomon, this is really significant because the name Solomon means peace. Solomon is here, you know, kind of messing up the opportunity to reign on the throne of, of, of David, the man after God's own heart. But then as, as Isaiah reminds us, there will later come another Solomon, another man whose name is Peace the Prince of Peace, who will reign in perpetuity forever on David's throne. And of the increase of his government and of peace, of shalom, of shlomo, there will be no end. So what we've got here is a pointer to one who is greater than Solomon. And in chapter 5, it's going to take us a few weeks to get there, I feel like I want to sprint to chapter 5 and then just sit in chapter 5 because chapter 5 is where the release valve gets triggered. And the release valve in chapter 5 of Micah is that from Bethlehem will come a ruler and he shall be their peace. And of course, it's talking about Jesus. And here's the last takeaway. This This is marvelous. 
Who's going to be included in the reign of peace but the sin of Judah? Samaria. Great commission. Go into all the world, Jesus says, making disciples of of all nations, starting in Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. In other words, bringing them in, including them, making a seat for them at the table of grace. You know, J.K. Rowling's, you know, mudbloods. You know, half-breeds, according to the Harry Potter, right? That was a similar metaphor as as Samaritan. You know, Samaritan means contaminated. And and Jesus says, bring on the contamination because because when I put my arms around you, it, it passes to me and you're made clean. It's crazy that he uses the name Jacob instead of Israel, which are interchangeable names for the same man. Jacob is the name that means liar. It's as if Jesus everywhere in here is saying through Micah, through the Great Commission, I get into the mess. I get into the contamination. I get into the prostitution and the devastation. Like I sit in that with you. I go to the whorehouse. Not to behave poorly, but to redeem beautifully. It's who I am. You know, he makes a Samaritan into a hero in one of his parables. He speaks tenderly to a Samaritan woman at the well who's been with who knows how many men. He's the messenger who stays, who promises also the Great Commission, I will be with you always to the very end of the age. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we... We give you thanks that you sent Jesus in order to curtail your thunder so that he could win us with honey instead of thunder, so that he could speak tenderly to us because he's already absorbed the harshness that was due to Israel and that candidly is due to every sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure. We thank you for this table of grace that reminds us that we have a place of belonging even as the young Mephibosheth, the young disabled man, always had a seat at King David's table for the sake of his father Jonathan. We also have a seat at your table, and it's a table that, that, that preaches to us That in Jesus Christ we are forgiven. In Jesus Christ we are adopted and kept and loved. In Jesus Christ we are given a hope and a future. And so, Lord, meet us in this supper now at your table of grace, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.